Now, dear congregation, will you take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We come this morning to the very last section, verse 50 through verse 58 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So I'm going to begin to read verse 50 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. <clears throat> Excuse me. Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, or brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on, the Im- puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. May God bless to us the reading of his word. Let us pray together. Father, we come now to the preaching of your word. We ask that the Holy Spirit would take the things of Christ and reveal them to us, to our hearts, to our minds that we might be taken up with Jesus Christ, with all that he is and all that he has accomplished for us, that we might grasp and understand the glory and the wonder of this passage which is before us, that it might be an encouragement to us, that it might be a strengthening to us, that we might look forward to that great day of resurrection for ourselves. So help us to that end, we pray. We ask your blessing now upon your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This whole chapter, chapter 15, the Apostle Paul has been aiming, I think, at strengthening our faith. There have been questions that have been raised by the Corinthians, verse 12, verse 35, that have to do with the reality of the resurrection, the doctrine of the resurrection. And I think what the Apostle Paul, in all of the arguments that he has given throughout this passage up to verse 50, is designed by him to deepen our conviction uh, that it might result in a confession of renewed vigor and renewed faith. That this is what I believe. That these are the reasons why I believe this doctrine of the resurrection. I think that's what Paul wants the Corinthians ultimately to come out from the chapter confessing. That they do believe that there will be definitely a resurrection. And certainly a resurrection of the dead, a resurrection of the body. All because Jesus himself rose from the dead. The the gospel is what lies at the heart of all Christianity, of all Scripture. And you notice in the opening verses of chapter 15 that the Apostle Paul has outlined the Gospel. He has told these Corinthians that what he delivered to them, what he preached to them, they heard him, they believed him, they received the Gospel. And that Gospel consisted, he says, of Jesus' death, of Jesus' burial, and of Jesus' resurrection on the third day. That's what the Corinthians believed. 
And I dare say if I were to question you this morning, you would confess that you believe the same thing. You believe these truths that are elementary or essential to what the gospel is. That's what Paul begins. He begins with the gospel, that the gospel is about Jesus' death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead. So much so that the tomb now, of course, is empty and has been empty because on the third day Jesus rose from the dead. The gospel that was true for Corinth is the same gospel for us in Sarasota this morning. It's an identical gospel. There's no additions. There are no subtract subtractions. What Paul preached is what we preached. I mean, that's the definition of a church that gathers together. They gather together for apostolic doctrine, for apostolic teaching. And that's what we bind ourselves to. That we will declare, like Paul declared to the Ephesians, that we will declare the whole counsel of God. We'll hold nothing back but that we will reveal what the Bible teaches us so that we can believe this gospel. It's like Luke writing his gospel. He writes his gospel to reassure, to educate Theophilus, that nobleman, so that he might know the certainty of the things that he has been taught. And then he follows up with the book of Acts, so that you really might be grounded in what you believe and what you confess. It's taken the Apostle Paul, 50 verses or 49 verses to get to verse 50 and he's still not done. But he's all about the resurrection, isn't he? Because it's so important and so crucial to us. In fact, the idea or the doctrine of resurrection, I shouldn't say the idea, but the doctrine of resurrection is really the ceiling of gospel grace to us. Because if you have just the death of Jesus and the burial of Jesus without a resurrection, what good news is that? Because all of us die and lie in the grave. But Jesus conquered death, didn't He? And He came out of the tomb and He came out of death because He possesses life in and of Himself. No man, Jesus said, takes my life from me, but I have the power, the authority to lay it down and the same power to take it back to myself. That's what Jesus did. That's the gospel. That's why we can live with assurance that this Christian gospel that we confess and profess and believe is true because it's sealed by Jesus' resurrection and shall certainly be proven to be true by our own resurrection from the dead. Oh, how marvelous the gospel is. How marvelous grace is to you and to me this morning and through what it accomplishes. So Paul is taken up with this one theme, this theme of resurrection in chapter 15. It's the entire chapter, right? And the resurrection of Christ seals and guarantees the resurrection of all the dead and seals and guarantees the resurrection of each believer and also the resurrection of the body. And of course, if Jesus rose, Paul wants to argue, we rise also. So to deny the resurrection. To say it didn't happen, or to say it, it didn't occur the way the Bible, the New Testament describes it, is to deny the gospel, is to deny the faith. That's why, that's why Calvin could say that the doctrine of the resurrection is the closing scene of redemption. It seals redemption. It finishes the work. It puts a nail in the coffin of death. And it ends death. And it brings life and so on. So now as we come to the end of this chapter, this glorious chapter, chapter 15, there are just two things that Paul says to us. The first thing he talks about is the mystery explained. The mystery explained. The second thing he gives us is the motivation exhorted. So he explains the mystery and he exhorts us, he motivates us, and as we shall see uh, as we get to the last verse. So the mystery is verses 50 through 57. He unfolds that. He unpacks that. And then he gives the motivation in verse 58, the last verse of the chapter. The mystery is all about the change. Now hear this. The mystery is all about the change that takes place at resurrection. The motivation is all about the charge that Paul lays upon us in light of the resurrection change. 
So we have a mystery, it's all about change, and we have motivation, which is all about a charge that the Apostle Paul lays upon us. So, you'll notice, for instance, at the end of verse 51, and in verse 52, that Paul makes this statement, we shall all be changed, we shall be changed, he says. And that word changed simply means to be transformed, or to be made otherwise. We shall all be changed. Now, Paul, if that's what you say, the first thing I want to ask you is, why must there be a change? Why must this change take place? The simple and the direct answer to why this change must take place is because it fits you for heaven, ultimately. It's necessary to enter the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. In fact, without this change, we shall not experience all that there is to experience in glory that is to come. The intermediate state is not the final state. The intermediate state where the souls of the believers who have died are with the Lord Jesus, absent from the body, present with the Lord, is not the end. That's only a halfway kind of position. That the dead are with Christ, yes, but they await their souls to rejoin with the body, and that body shall be the resurrection body. So without this change, we can never experience the glories and the wonders and ultimately of heaven itself. That's what Paul tells us in verse 50. If you look at verse 50, what does he say? I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Right now, as you sit in that chair, you are flesh and blood. And in that condition, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Cannot enter heaven as you are this morning. Because you're in this body of flesh and blood in your present body. So we determine from that statement that the resurrection body is different. That it is not flesh and blood as we are constituted now. Now that doesn't mean it's not a body because Jesus risen from the dead stands before his disciples in his resurrection body, in his glorified body, but yet it is not constituted as flesh and blood. You're not going to need the circulation of your blood through your flesh in order to survive, to live, to breathe, because you don't need it. Flesh and blood is not necessary for the kingdom of heaven, to inherit the kingdom of heaven. So the resurrection body is not like your body at the moment. In fact, thank God it's not. Right? Because you can be dismayed about your body, troubled by your body. You suffer in the flesh. You are grieved by, by the weakening of your body as you get older and so on. But there will be no such thing to occur with the resurrection body. It will not be like flesh and blood. Notice also in verse 50 that Paul says that the perishable, the perishable inherits the imperishable. What is the perishable? The perishable must be the same as flesh and blood. So that the perishable, verse 50, is destined for corruption. It must give way to that which is imperishable, not destined for corruption, not subject to decay, and not going to death and dust. So this body, flesh and blood, is going to be buried in a grave one day, and there in the grave it's going to go back to dust. But God, when Jesus comes, is going to reconnect, connect all that, gather it together, and my soul shall be joined with the body that is raised, and it's a resurrection body. And that's what Paul says about the perishable. This body now, it's perishing, giving way to that body which shall never perish in glory and heaven. So the resurrection then, Paul wants you to know, is necessary to fit you for that change. You need resurrection to bring about this necessary change because without that change you cannot inherit, he says, you cannot enter in, you cannot receive entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Now let me remind you that Nicodemus had a discussion with Jesus, you remember one night, and he go, went on about how Jesus was this wonderful teacher and did all these wonderful things. Therefore, you must be from God. 
And Jesus, in reply, never said anything about or acknowledged all of that. He simply, simply said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you that unless one is born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, what does he mean? He's not talking about resurrection there. He's talking about regeneration. And regeneration is a spiritual thing, an internal work. The new birth, being born again, born from above. It's a spiritual work inside of us. But the resurrection, on the other hand, gives evidence that not only is it a spiritual work, imperishable and so on, but that it is visible. It's a body. You can see it. So, whereas regeneration is an internal operation of the Holy Spirit of God, the resurrection body is a visible physical manifestation of the body that used to be, but it's no longer the same, it's no longer flesh and blood. So, when we think about what do you mean, Paul, when you talk about imperishable and perishable, or when you talk about corruption and incorruption, what do you mean by that? I include not just the condition, right, the body per se, the change from physical, flesh and blood, to imperishable, to this resurrection body, but I think also the cause, not just the condition of what our body is, but the cause that is Paul is thinking about, our sinful condition at this present moment. I know that because Paul has talked about the difference between Adam and Jesus. What's the difference between Adam and Jesus? As in Adam, verse 22, all die, so too in Jesus shall all, verse 22, be made alive. That's the difference, right? The difference is life and death. That in Adam, we all die, but in Jesus, we are alive, truly alive. So death, the Bible teaches us, is the consequence of the sin of Adam in the garden, and the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23, but the free gift of God is eternal life through or in our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's no question, when Paul paints the picture of this body and sin, it's because of Adam, yes, and it's because of our sin, but it's going to death. We die. But when he paints the picture about Jesus, and those who are in Jesus, it's all about life. Eternal life that God has given to us. So, we can say then, based on what Paul says in verse 50, there must be a change. It is necessary to have this change in a future day to enter in, finally, to inherit the kingdom of God. The first change is regeneration. It leads to the second ultimate change, our resurrection that is to come. And God's kingdom, by the way, is an imperishable kingdom. It's not like the kingdom of man. It's not like America or India or China. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. There's no more Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. There's no more Nero and Titus and Rome. There's no more Pharaohs and Egypt. There's no more Alexander the Greats and, e and uh, Greece. No more Cyrus the Great of Persia and the Darius of the Medes. None of those kingdoms stand. They all have perished because they're perishable. They don't last. But the kingdom of God is eternal and imperishable, and you and I must be fitted for that imperishable condition or place. So, praise God for that, right? The one thing I know about God's kingdom and glory is that it is unassaulted by sin. It is unaffected by sin, because flesh and blood, as I am now, in my sinful condition, will not be there. Because there will be no flesh and blood, no sinful tendencies, no sinful nature, because I will have died and I rise again in newness of life, and so too the change has taken place. The change is necessary. The change, Paul says, is essential. So my present body, your present body, perishable, corruptible, it's going to be changed. Isn't that what Paul means? We shall all be changed from that condition of flesh and blood, from perishable to that which is not, to that which is imperishable. Now, in the previous verses, 35 through 49, which we considered last week, the Apostle explained the process. 
He talked about sowing seed and the seed must die in order to bring forth life. And he talked about the distinction in the glory of the bodies, the heavenly bodies and the earthly bodies and the sun and the moon and the stars and the flesh of human beings and animals and fish and birds. All of these distinctions, he says, making the point that there are distinctions in flesh and blood. But now he tells us about this very change that he hinted at it must die, the body, and it must, be, it must come to life. And if it dies, it will come to life. And not only that, but now he wants to tell us about this change. And so he, notice how he talks about it. He says, behold, verse 51, I tell you a mystery. I tell you a mystery. What is a mystery? A mystery in the Bible, right, is something that is not known previously, but is now being revealed or is made known. So that's what Paul is saying. When he says, I tell you a mystery, it existed before, it was not unknown. In fact, he's going to talk about, uh, from the Old Testament, Oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? And so on, which comes from the Old Testament. So the understanding of death and dying and dissolution is in the Old Testament, but so too is resurrection in the Old Testament. So when he talks about, I tell you, a mystery, that's what he means. He's going to make known to us in clear terms what was not so plain and clear before or which was concealed. Well, what is the mystery, right? We all love a good mystery, don't we? I've been reading some Agatha Christie mysteries. And they're so, they're so fascinating to me. I have no idea how that lady kept all those things in her mind. Absolutely none, because I can't follow them at all. When she gets to the end, I say, aha, I see how you did it, but don't ask me to repeat the process. Can't do it. It's a mystery, right? Still a mystery to me how it all happened. So Paul, what is the mystery? Look at his opening statement. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now what does he mean by sleep? He, that's just another word for death, right? Particularly, that's a word for the death of a believer. So when Stephen, laying down his life, at the end of Acts chapter 7, it says that as they stoned him, he fell asleep. He died. He died. That's what the word sleep means. What does the word changed mean? We shall, we shall not all sleep, we shall all be changed. What does the word changed mean? It means I'm raised, it's resurrection, no longer in the same condition that I was previously flesh and blood. The state of death, naturally perishable condition and so on. Now I know from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that a number of things are said by the Apostle Paul about what happens when Jesus comes and this idea of resurrection. So in 1 Thessalonians 4.15, this is what he says. He says, we who are alive will not precede those who have fallen asleep. What does he mean by that? Verse 16, the dead in Christ will rise first. Well, that's great. What about me? Then, verse 17, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. And what's the end? Together we shall always be with the Lord. But for both groups, those who have fallen asleep, those who have died, Paul's writing to the Corinthians, right? You have some, those who have died, and verse 15, verse 51, and those who are alive, we shall all be changed, okay? Meaning, from 1 Thessalonians 4, those who are still alive when Jesus comes, so that some believers have died, they will rise first, then we who remain, who are still alive, will be caught up together with them, and there will be a change that takes place. A change for the dead in Christ who rise from the grave. A change for those who are alive as they are caught up. That's resurrection change. We all will be changed. And Paul's very, very assertive about that so that you can be assured that it will happen to you as well. Now the question is, well how does that happen? Look at verse 52. How does that happen? He says, we shall all be changed, end of verse 51, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. There's where he's going, right? So how does the change happen? It happens with speed. 
Right? It happens with speed. Look what he says first of all. In a moment, Greek word is atomo, from which you get the word atom. A small little thing that is too small to even be cut. A portion of time that is so short it can never be subject to further divisibility, to division. Right? Incapable of further division. In a moment, in the flash, in this atom amount of time, he says, which is instantaneous, the change takes place. In a moment. Done. That's, not, that's the first thing. Second thing he says, look at the text, in the twinkling of an eye. You know, we are all, unless you think about it this morning, completely unaware that you blink. I mean, you've already done it hundreds of times today. And I dare say you haven't even thought about it once till I told you right now. And now you're practicing, right? <laughs> Just to make sure that you actually do blink. Yes, you do blink, right? Uh, and as fast as that reflex is, Paul says, that's how fast the change is. Now, you know, the average human blink is about 100 milliseconds, sometimes a little faster than that. In that time that you blink, 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 in the time that you blink, your eyelid, as it descends, wipes away the dust particles and lubricates your eyeball. Choop, choop, done, right? As fast as you can imagine, a hundred millisecond blink. And the real important thing about a blink, or the twinkling of your eye, right, is you really do not notice the temporary darkness that descends upon you when you close your eye. You don't think about it. You just blink. Now don't practice and blink and I see the darkness. Okay? Because you will see it. But when you blink, you, you just never think about that. But that's what happens, right? When you blink your eye, when you twinkle your eye, that darkness descends upon it. We blink on average about 15 to 20 times per minute, which is about 20,000 times a day, which is about 7 million times a year, which works out in your life to be about 600 days when your eyes are shut through blinking. Right? So for 10% of the time, you're actually alive, probably, that you're awake, your eyes are completely shut, when you put it all together. In the twinkling of your eye changed. As fast as that is, total beautiful change. It happens with speed. Right? When does it happen? Thirdly, notice what Paul says, at the last Trumpet. Not only does resurrection change happen with speed, but it happens with sound. At the last trumpet. Now you know trumpets are important in the Bible. They were important to Israel in the Old Testament. I mean there's even a feast of trumpets, right? Leviticus chapter 23. Seventh month, first day. Blow the trumpets. They had a feast of trumpets. Israel had two silver trumpets made. Numbers chapter 10. Those two silver trumpets summoned the congregation together. Those silver trumpets uh, were sounded so that they would break up camp, so that they could move on in their wilderness journeys. Trumpets were used in war. Think about Joshua at Jericho, right? Sounding the trumpets and the, the walls come down with a shout and so on. The thing about a trumpet sound, it's so piercing, so powerful, it can be paralyzing. It can bring fear and trembling in a moment, in a heartbeat. But here, in verse 52, it is really the call to come together, to be gathered together to the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 31, that the holy angels will be sent out to gather in God's elect with the trumpet sound, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we shall sit down together with them. A trumpet sound. Notice how Paul describes the trumpet. It is the last trump. The last trumpet. Now, back in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 16, the whole verse says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Think about the sounds, right? 
cry of command, voice of the archangel, the shout of the archangel, this trumpet sound, just sound. And yet it's so fast that we are changed. We are changed. That's the day of resurrection. Now, as an aside, I want to show you something that maybe you've never thought about. I want you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. And uh, verse 15. Revelation 11, 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. I take that to be the last trumpet. I take that to be the day of resurrection. Which means, by the way, that the bold judgments of chapter 16, and the trumpet judgments here, and the seal judgments of chapter uh, 6 and 7, are all speaking about similar events, similar time frames and all of this, picturing the desire of the world to cause you to compromise with the system. And God's people are not to yield to that. So I take Revelation 11, which is in the middle of all the judgments, to actually be referring that seventh trumpet to the last and final trumpet. I also say it because now, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of Jesus. And it's imperishable. They reign with Him forever and ever when that seventh trumpet sounds. And this is what Paul, I think, is saying here, right? It is the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, he says, verse 52, and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. So when you hear the sound, at the same time, with speed... Change has taken place. You have been changed. Now, you know, a lot of people go to gyms and do exercises. Think of how, how, how much time you must invest to change your body from an ugly specimen to a magnificent specimen, right? Think of all the time invested in that. Think of all the pain invested in that. Resurrection is like blink your eye, done. Trumpet sound, yes, doom, changed, instantaneously. Beautiful, isn't it? What a comparison between that which is perishable and that which will be imperishable in the resurrection. So verse 53 refers to before the change. Notice the text. For this perishable, he's explaining, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Notice, notice how he describes it, right? Verse 53, a perishable body, a mortal body, contrasts that with an imperishable body and immortality, right? So he takes that which is decaying, right now, flesh and blood, that which is decaying, that which will die, it must, it must, it will give way to life. That's the principle of sowing the seed. It dies, it comes to life, right? Notice Paul's language, verse 53, this imperishable body must put on. And this mortal body must put on. So he's speaking about, this is what is in the future. This is before the change. It must do this. It must give way. So twice, he says, must put on. What is this little phrase, must put on? That's a, that's a, that, that word refers to a clothing change. It's like you're changing clothes, changing body in one sense. The clothing is different. It's not flesh and blood. Must put on imperishable. Must put on immortality. And the Apostle Paul tells the Ephesians, in Ephesians 4 verse 22, they must put off the old self. And in Ephesians 4 24, you must put on the new self. Change your clothes. Change your way of life. That's the process of sanctification. Isn't sanctification all about change as well? It's a process of change, right? A process of renewal. By the way, our being changed, sanctified, renewed in our spiritual life is only possible because of regeneration. 
And our future change is only possible because, for the believer, because of regeneration as well. We inherit the kingdom prepared for us before the foundation of the world. Oh, you know, God is so good to us. I mean, just think about this for a moment, right? He goes from redemption to regeneration to renewal to resurrection. And it's God who's doing it. He goes from predestination to justification to sanctification to glorification. And it's God who is at work in all of these things. So from corruption to incorruption, from mortality to immortality, from that which perishes to that which will never perish, it's God must be changed, must put on, Paul says. So if verse 53 is before the change, verse 54 is after the change. Look at verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the same. Death is swallowed up in victory. Now how do I know it's after the change? Look at the language of Paul. He says, when this happens, so I know it must happen, verse 53 and before, it's going to happen, but when it does happen, verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, now look at his word, then, then, what happens? Shall come to pass the same, death is no more, swallowed up in victory. What is the victory? It's the imperishable, it's the immortality, it's the incorruptible, it's the not flesh and blood, present body, but a new, changed body like Jesus, his own body. So verse 54, after the change, right? When we have been changed then, Paul says we are considered immortal, imperishable, and incorruptible. Not like we are now. What a change, right? That must take place. And you know another thing Paul says? That change, when it does take place, proves what the Bible says. And notice his quotes in verse 54 and verse 55. Death is swallowed up in victory, comes from Isaiah 25, verse 8. And, O oh death, where is your victory? O oh death, where is your sting? From Hosea chapter 13 and verse 14. And both those chapters, chapter 25 of Isaiah and chapter 13 of Hosea, are all about victory and the vanquishing of death. So that what we have described for us is that death is vanquished and there is victory. Victory for who? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why through our Lord Jesus Christ? Because he's risen from the dead. He's conquered death. And he did it in death, by death, at the cross for us. Because what Jesus did, that's what's going to happen to me. It's glorious, isn't it? So, this is what Jesus, by the way, undertook for us in the covenant of redemption, the eternal covenant of redemption. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20 and 21. That between Father and Son, this is their plan and this is their purpose, that death ultimately will be no more. It will be vanquished and victory will be achieved. Now, how is that possible? At the cross, what binds you to death and what keeps you heading for hell, Jesus came and destroyed. So that you might be free, that your sins might be forgiven and washed away, right? So at the cross, Jesus pays the price of sin, the sin price to the Father who demands that price for my sin. Jesus says, I die. I take his place. He goes free. He's forgiven. So the price is death. And what happens to death? Death gives way to life. Isn't that glorious? Amen. Perishable, imperishable. Death gives way to life. In other words, the life of Jesus is our life now. Our life now. And the proof of it will be when we experience the change. And then we shall be like him. We shall see him as he is, right? And Isaiah puts it like this, he will swallow up death forever. 
And the Lord God will wipe away from their, the tears from their faces and the reproach of His people He will take away from the earth. For the Lord has spoken, which fulfills, by the way, Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. He shall be our God and we shall be His people. Now, in other words, death no longer has power over us. Right now, death has power. You will die unless Jesus comes today. What happens when Jesus comes today? Trumpet sounds. Right? Atomic change takes place. Twinkling of an eye, change takes place when Jesus comes. Ah, death will no longer have any power over us when Jesus comes. It will be done. He will be victorious, and we will be victorious in Him. There will be no more sting of death, right? The unbelieving world fears death, because they have nothing to offer, nothing to consider, nothing to believe in. Or they may have some philosophies. They may have some ideas about afterlife and all of that, but no hope, no life, nothing. So what can be offered to them when an unbeliever dies? What can you say to them? Do you know Christ? Because unless you know Christ and you're living, you perish. You perish and are under the wrath and judgment of God. But for the believer, death is like a little sting in the tail, isn't it? But that is even taken care of and removed for us. Jesus has conquered. Now, dear congregation, let me remind you, in the Garden of Eden, Satan won a little skirmish. But it was God's plan that that little skirmish would be conquered at the cross. Satan at the cross thought he won another battle. All those little victories of the devil in the Garden of Eden and in, at Calvary were wiped away by Jesus on the third day. Gone. I'm alive forevermore. Do not fear. I am the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus is life itself. Right? And we are in Christ. So Satan's little schemes, they lie in ruins, don't they? Because of what Jesus did on the third day and what he did at the cross for me. So notice verse 56 says that sin gives death its power. And Paul explains that in Romans 5. And that the law gives sin its power. So I want you to notice the progression, right? The law gives sin its power, which gives death its power. So you have a law which is violated and broken. And the consequence of that law is when it's broken is sin. And the further consequence of the sin is death itself. Notice the progression. Law, sin, death. But Jesus is the end of the law for all those who believe. Romans 10 verse 14. That's the gospel. That's grace. Christ. Right? So if sin is forgiven, now here's the thing. If sin is forgiven, if your sins are forgiven, death is harmless. Death has no hold because your sins are forgiven. If your sins are not forgiven, the consequence is death. Real death in the sense that ultimately you go from this death physically to that death, second death spiritually, the lake of fire. How terrifying that is. But to know what Jesus did at the cross, He forgave my sins, gives me life and gives me hope. Right now, this morning, my sins are forgiven. Death is gone in one sense. It's harmless. And therefore death has no victory. That's why Paul says, where is your victory? Where is your sting? It's been taken out from you by Jesus and His death. So death and sin are vanquished, and Jesus is victorious. And what can you say to that? Dear congregation, all you can say to that is, Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Thank you for your victory for me. Look at verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because there can be no charge against God's elect. Why? Because it is God who justifies, right? The ungodly. Without our Lord Jesus Christ, 
his death, his burial, his resurrection, verses 3 and 4, without that, then death would reign forever. But on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, death cannot reign. It's over, because Jesus conquered death. Not only did he die my death, but he killed it, and he overcame it, and he lives in the power of an endless life for me and for you. That's, that's the gospel. Do you believe the gospel? That's good news, isn't it? So the resurrection, we shall all be changed. What Paul says here, the resurrection then is the proof that Jesus is one. That's the mystery. That's the mystery revealed, explained. The final thing is the motivation, verse 58, last verse. There are three things to do, or perhaps I should put it this way, because the Greek text puts it this way. There are three things you are supposed to be, called to be. By the way, the word be, be steadfast, is a command. So these are commands. So notice number one, be steadfast. This is Paul's charge to us. In light of the change that is coming, his charge, number one, be steadfast. Number two, be immovable. Number three, be always abounding in the work of the Lord. What does he mean by be steadfast? What does he mean by that? That word steadfast means to have a, a fixed heart, a firm heart, a purpose of heart, that it comes from believing the word of God. In other words, settle your whole life in the Bible, in God's Word. Be steadfast. Be constant. Remain in your place, which leads to, second thing, be immovable. In other words, don't be shifting from beliefs. Don't imbibe foolish notions and ideas and teachings. Don't be dissuaded. Don't be disturbed. Be fixed. Be immovable, he says. Don't move from the truth. Don't be swayed from the truth. Immovable, by the way, we get the word kinetos, but here it's archinatos, the negation of kinetos. What is kinetos? It's kinetic. What is the whole essence of kinetic energy? Motion, movement. Don't move. Don't be in this state of change, this state of flux. Stay. Be immovable, he says. How do you do that? Number one. Don't violate the truth. And number two, don't vacillate from the truth. Be steadfast, be immovable, Paul says. I always think for myself and for other believers, we should be solid people. As the hymn writer says, grounded, firm, and deep. Fixed, steadfast, not moving, not shaken by every wind of doctrine. Firm. Thirdly, if being steadfast and immovable speaks of your stability as a Christian, now, now Paul speaks of your service. Look what the last thing is. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Not only improving, but increasing. Not only improving, but increasing. The Bible tells me in 1 Thessalonians 3.12, I am to abound in love. Colossians 2.7, I am to abound in thanksgiving. So this is Paul's charge to you to this morning to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding. In other words, every one of us must give ourselves to the Lord and to His service. Notice the word abounding means to be rich in, means to excel in. How often must I engage in the Lord's work, Paul? How often should I do this? Look at verse 58. Always. No time off. No time off. From the Lord's service. Can't take a break. Always means at all times. So Paul speaks of the Lord's work. And then he speaks of your labor for the Lord, right? And the Lord's work is that work which the Lord gives you to do. In other words, be obedient to His will. Be faithful to Him. Be holy unto Him. But your labor in the Lord is doing the work of the Lord. Why must I do it? Is it worth it? Yes, it's worth it because Paul says it's not in vain. It's never in vain. What's the word vain? Futile. Empty. So your labor for the Lord will never be futile, but it will always be fruitful. It will always be fruitful. Now I may be weary, and you may be weary in the work of the Lord. Paul says don't flag. Don't 
give up. Be steadfast. Be strong. Be immovable. And always continue. Always abound. Because your labor for the Lord and in the Lord is never empty and never foolish and never futile and never vain. It's always productive and fruitful and for the glory of God. Dear congregation, there are abundant opportunities for you to serve Jesus Christ. Here. In fact, the principal place for you to serve Jesus Christ when we are gathered like this is the church. Yes, you serve the Lord in your family. Yes, you gather your, your loved ones together and you serve the Lord in that. But here you are in a privileged position as a congregation to serve Christ. Opportunities abound. Be always abounding, he says. Oh, now listen, I'll tell you a little secret. If love is your motive then your labor will be light. But if love is not your motive, you will hate what you do. You won't like it. But you see, Jesus says, my yoke, my burden is light and easy. It's no problem. I'm with you. Come to me. I give you rest, he says. So here it is, dear congregation. It's the resurrection then. It promises the great change. But in the meantime, in flesh and blood, I have a charge. I have a charge from God to be this kind of person, right? So Paul's charge to me and to you is because you are going to be changed, to be like Christ. And we anticipate our future change. We look forward to it. How do I do that? I prepare myself. How do I prepare myself? Be steadfast, be immovable, and be always abounding in the work of the Lord. In other words, I'm preparing for the change by keeping the charge right now. Because it's not in vain and it's not a waste of time. May that be true of all of us. Let's pray together. Now, Father, thank you for your word. This conclusion by the Apostle Paul to this glorious chapter on resurrection. May this be a, a stimulation to us, a challenge to us to to look forward to the great resurrection change, we shall all be changed, to prepare ourselves in the light of that by laboring on for the Lord Jesus Christ, always being steadfast, always being immovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord because our labor in the Lord is never in vain. So we thank you for your goodness to us and thank you for your promises to us in your word about what shall happen to all of us we look forward to that great day when our Lord Jesus shall come and we shall be changed and we shall be like him in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet in a moment. We thank you. So now we thank you for this day and ask your rich blessing upon us as your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.